Scripture reading for today is uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. It's page 810 in your pew Bibles. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is God's word. Well, please pray with me before we turn to this passage. Father in heaven, we continue to give you thanks um, for how you have called us into your presence and how you are with us, because you have promised to be with us when we gather together in your name. Um, and again, we don't want to take that for granted. We don't want to take for granted um, the fact that we can stand in the presence of a holy God and that we can even as the scriptures say, approach the throne of grace with confidence and with boldness. Um, and we come before you now uh, to bring our petitions to you, not, not in the hopes that you will hear them, um, but grounded in the promise that you do and that you have commanded us to bring these things before you. Father, today I want to pray for your church, um, your church around the world, as the gospel is being preached, both in places um, such as here, where we enjoy a lot of freedom to gather, as we're gathered right now without fear, and in places in the world where those who gather in your name uh, do so, knowing that they do so at, at, at the risk um, of uh, their lives, their livelihoods, uh, their freedoms. Um, we want to pray for your church uh, across this nation as we are in the middle of a season where uh, politics are grabbing our attention um, and uh, causing many of us uh, to cry out all the more fervently, come, Lord Jesus, um, put things into order uh, that are in disorder. And we pray for your church in this city. Um, Father, today we want to lift up uh, the church uh, here in Boston. Um, those of us who have been here for a while have um, been amazed to see your spirit at work, to see how the church has grown, uh, to see how you have drawn people to yourself uh, who did not know you, uh, who had walked away from you, um, and have changed their lives and, and have, have turned them towards you. Um, it, it's been amazing uh, to see the power of your word. Um, of, of the gathered worship uh, that you uh, instruct us uh, to, to participate in, how that, how that has the capacity to change lives. Um, Father, there has also been plenty of grief, uh, and right now is a time when, when we look at, at the church in Boston. Uh, there's a lot of grief. There's a lot of turmoil. Um, there's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of division. There are many ways in which we have to say uh, that we... All of us, we are falling short. We are um, not uh, embodying the love uh, that Jesus has called us to. Uh, we are not uh, finding ways to lay down our lives for one another um, 
every, every time Jesus talked about this, every time Paul talks about this, it is to the end that you would be glorified and you would be known. Um, and so, Father, we, we pray that in spite of our shortcomings, you would continue to be known as a good and gracious and powerful God. Um, Father, we want to specifically um, pray um, within our presbytery um, for Christ the King in Cambridge. And outside of our denomination, we want to pray for Park Street Church. Um, two churches that many of us know intimately, personally, um, and love. Uh, and our hearts break um, to see your church um, divided and, and, and in conflict. Um, Father, we bring these, th these things before you because you're the only one who can affect change. Uh, you alone are worthy. Um, you died for the sake of your church. Um, the psalm that we heard read and the way that Bryce led us in prayer already spoke of the love that you have uh, for your church, no less fervent than that of a husband for his bride. If anything, it's, it's just the reverse, where the love of earthly husbands for earthly brides are a pale imitation and just a shadow of the love that you have uh, for your church. And so we know that you love your church more than we do, uh, and that when we pray uh, for peace, for unity, for righteousness, for justice, for truth, when we pray for Christians to be able to lay down their lives for one another, uh, when we pray uh, that the witness of your church would ring clear and true, um, we are praying for the things that you long to see and the things that you have promised um, will come about. You have promised that your church will not, will not fail. You, Jesus, promised to build your church. And today we want to join our voices with saints around the world and across time uh, in praying for you to continue doing that. Father, as we come to this passage, we know uh, that it cuts us to the quick, um, and we know um, that one of the ways that you build uh, your church is by calling us again and again uh, to repentance. And so as we are called uh, to grapple with the weight of sin and to receive once again your forgiveness and your grace, um, Again, we're, we're, we're praying for you to do the work that you've promised to do. And so it is with confidence and with boldness that I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, after last week's sermon, uh, as we looked at Jesus' words uh, about the sixth commandment, about murder, about anger, um, probably the most frequent comment that I got from people was, uh, that was convicting. And as I said last week, um, I, I meant it to be convicting, and I, I meant it to be convicting for me as, as well. Uh, it was convicting for everyone in this room. Um, I, part of me wishes that I could say that this week we're going to have a bit of a break and that things will get easier, but you heard the passage uh, read, um, and Jesus is just going to keep going. And, and we're just going to continue um, to hear uh, from him um, the full weight uh, of, of our sin. Um, and we need that. Let's, let's, let's be honest. We need 
uh, to, to grapple with this uh, in order to hear the good news as good news. So here's what we're going to be looking at. This week, um, Jesus is moving on from the sixth commandment to the seventh, uh, the one that says you will not commit adultery. And just as last week, uh, as he exercises his authority uh, as the word of God to interpret and even to fulfill the word, uh, the law, uh, he is going to do it in this mode where he's going to show us how what we thought was a command only pertaining to external things and external actions is actually about our hearts um, and is therefore much harder uh, and much more convicting. That's the first thing that we'll look at is that adultery is a matter of the heart. Understand what he means by that. Um, I then want us to understand uh, the weight of, of this sin. I want us to talk about the divisive power and the destructive power of lust, as he, as he describes it. And that, I hope, puts us in the position of asking the question, thirdly, so how then can we be changed? What, what, is, what is the hope uh, for us to be changed? So we're going to look at adultery being a matter of the heart. Secondly, the divisive power of lust. And thirdly, ask the question, so how then can we be changed? Let's, let's take a look at this. So, to begin with, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Um, so let's first ask, what is it that he's saying? What does he mean uh, when he says that to look at a woman with lustful intent, uh, you have already committed adultery with her? Um, in, in, in your heart. Um, notice that he doesn't just simply say that to look at a woman with lustful intent is just as bad. Um, he specifically says it is as though you have committed adultery. So it's worth asking, what is that? What is, what is adultery? What is the nature of it? Why does, he, why does he call it that? Adultery at its root is a betrayal. It is, it is one of the most painful and crushing betrayals of a covenant um, that we can imagine. Um, it is offering to someone else what rightfully belongs only to your spouse. Um, not only your body, um, but your affection, your heart, your whole person. Throughout the scriptures... God uses adultery as one of the prime ways that he describes what he has against his own people um, as they have worshipped other gods. And there's a reason that he does that. Um, he talks about... Um, he talks about... Well, you heard about this in, in Ezekiel. Um, he talks about uh, Israel's uh, worship of idols... Um, as being like an unfaithful bride, um, like adultery, even like prostitution. Uh, if you remember when we went through Ezekiel, um, there were sections of it that I said, I'm not going to read this part. It's God's word, so I encourage you to go read it, but just so we can keep our family-friendly podcast rating, I'm not going to say these things out loud. Um, he speaks in very, very specific and graphic and visceral terms. Um, 
All of this is a way of, of describing um, offering your whole self to what doesn't deserve it. Offering inappropriately your, your, your whole self. We are made to worship God. We are made to lift up our soul uh, to him, to offer our whole selves, body, mind, spirit, and soul uh, to him. Um, he talks about idolatry um, as being the offering of all of that to something else, something that cannot save you, something that is not God. Um, and this is what adultery does within a human relationship, within a marriage. And again, it, it's not just that it gives your body to someone that it doesn't belong to. Um, inevitably, it involves your heart. Inevitably, it involves giving your heart uh, to someone um, that, it, that it doesn't belong to as well. Um, it's important that we understand this. It's important that we understand that sexual impurity is not just a sin of the body. Um, it, is, it is important that we understand that the damage that it does works on every level of the human being, that it works on our emotions, that it works in our minds. Um, it's important it's important to know that this applies um, not only specifically uh, in the case of adultery, not just in the technical case where someone who is married has an affair with someone else, um, but that this, that this applies to sexual sin of all kinds, that this applies to any sexual relationship taking outside the bounds, uh, taking place outside the bounds of, of marriage. Um, sex is meant to unite two people in a union that's so intimate, so close, that it's described in Genesis 2 as being one flesh. It's like they're one person. Um, and the tearing apart of that does damage. It's important that we, that we understand that. So Jesus, the first thing that he's doing is he's saying that what you have considered to be merely external uh, in fact strikes at the deepest heart of you. Uh, because what you're doing is you're offering your heart, your soul, your whole self uh, to someone that it doesn't belong to. So that's the first thing, that adultery is a matter of the heart. Um, the second thing I want to look at, though, is the divisive power that lust exercises and the destructive power. Um, so to get at this, we've asked, like, why does he use the word adultery? Um, let's look at the word lust, lustful here. Um, this is one of my favorite New Testament words. Um, it is this Greek word, epithumai, um, which is all over the New Testament. Paul uses it all over the place. It basically means over-desire, inordinate desire, disordered desire, right? Desiring something either too much or in the wrong context. That's what, that's what lust is uh, here. Now, it's important to note that the fact that there's such a thing as inordinate desire implies that there's also such a thing as ordered desire, rightly ordered desire. Um, and this is an important distinction to make. Jesus is not condemning sexual desire, period. He's not condemning all sexual <laughs> desire. Sexual desire in the right context inside of marriage is a good thing. Um, the Bible is really clear about this. 
um, the, the psalm that we had read. One of the reasons that I asked Bryce to read that, that psalm was so that you would have an example um, of a place where the Bible talks about the relationship between God and his church, between a husband and a wife, um, in sexual terms, and that that's a good thing. Um, by the way, Bryce, um, thank, I, I have given you a, a couple of really hard psalms in a row now, and I am always really thankful for the wisdom uh, with which you lead us in prayer through these things. Um, so, so thank you. Um, the sexual desire that unites a husband and wife is a good thing. It was God's idea. He, he made this up. Um, again, it was his desire to unite them so intimately that in Genesis 2, um, it says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's the, the kind of union um, that he has in mind. Um, it is a union that is an image for his love for the church. Um, in that, it is, on the one hand, covenantal. It's a covenantal union. It's not a contract. Um, the difference between a covenant and a contract is, is pretty simple. In a contract, two parties come into a contract and they say, as long as we behave towards one another in a certain way, we're in relationship, right? So if you get a new job and you sign an employment contract, that will say, as long as I do my work and I show up, and as long as the employer continues to, to pay me, we're gonna stay in this employer-employee relationship. But if either side falls short, then the relationship is over. And there's usually terms spelled out very specifically as to how that works, how the relationship comes apart. A covenant is the reverse of that. A covenant says, from this point forward, we are related. We are one. We are united. And therefore, we're going to behave towards one another in certain ways. And failure to behave towards one another in certain ways um, outside of, Jesus says, the adultery he's talking about here, um, does not break that relationship, does not end it. And what that means is that this union in marriage, a picture of the relationship that God has with his church, is something that can be taken as a fixed point. It can be taken as, as, as something that is um, unbreakable. I remember um, years ago, I was, I was talking to a friend of mine um, who was in a really long-term relationship um, with, with a woman and, you know, had, had not asked her to marry him and really had no intention and, and was really unsure as to why he would. And he made the argument, he said, you know, it just seems like this, this idea of marriage, you know, putting something into law, um, you know, there's kind of this element of now she belongs to me, I belong to her. That just seems backwards. That seems old. Um, you know, isn't it better to remain free you know, and to say, every day, I choose you. Every single morning, I choose you again. Now, I hope that married couples are able to look at each other every morning and say again, I choose you. But if you've been married for any length of time, you know that there are mornings when that's pretty hard to say. And the point of a covenantal relationship 
is that the stability of that relationship, the existence, the continuation of that relationship does not depend on how you happen to feel on that particular morning. It is something that you can take for granted. And, and ironically, what that means is it gives you a very different kind of freedom than what my friend was talking about. My friend wanted to retain the freedom to be in the relationship or to be out of it if the circumstances change. Um, but only in a covenantal union, only in something that is unbreakable, do you have the freedom to take for granted that it's still going to be there five years from now, ten years from now, as long as you both shall live. Um, and it's just that freedom which is attacked by lust. This is the device of power um, that, that lust has. What makes lust sexual desire outside of marriage inordinate, out of order, um, is that as opposed to a covenantal union in which you say to the other person, all of me is yours from this point forward. I give you my heart, I give you my whole self before I give you my body. Um, lust treats the other person as an object. He says, I want to unite our bodies, but I don't want the rest of it. I just want the feeling. I just want the gratification. It treats the other person as though they were an object that can be used for our own purposes. And so in that sense, lust ends up, instead of uniting two people together, it ends up dividing them. Not only does adultery, of course, have tremendous destructive and divisive power within the marriage that's being betrayed, of course it's divisive and destructive there, it is even divisive and destructive between the two people that are, that are coming together because they are treating each other as instruments, as commodities, as objects for their own purposes. And so there's actually something similar here to what we had last week. If you remember last week, we talked about how there is a kind of righteous anger, which we can, which we can contrast with what Jesus was condemning last week, which for the sake of, of having another word, we called contempt, right? And we said the difference between righteous anger and contempt is that righteous anger always moves you towards relationship, even if that's just in the form of prayer, of praying for the person you're angry at, or asking someone else to pray for you. It always in some way engages relationship, whereas contempt isolates you and moves you apart. Something similar is, is going on here. Rightly ordered sexual desire in marriage unites two people as though they were one. But lust drives them apart. Um, at this point, it's important that I say something about pornography. Pornography is just the logical end. It's, it's just kind of the furthest extreme of that commodification that use of another person. Pornography, the lie that pornography tells is that you can be satisfied sexually 
without having to deal with the inconvenience of another actual human being. And it is a lie. And it is a poisonous one. And sometimes people will say, well, but even if it's sinful, at least it's only hurting me. At least it's only hurting one person, right? And there's two problems with that argument. One is, even if that were true, um, that is not a good argument. God does not want you to hurt yourself. You bear his image. The New Testament says your body is his temple. He does not want you to do something even if it only hurts yourself. And the other problem is that it's not even true. It is not only hurting you. To objectify women. I'm going to use gender-specific terms mostly here. I realize these goes, this goes both ways, and you can replace the terms I'm using with the opposite, but I'm mostly speaking as a man to other men. To objectify women is an attack on every woman you know. It's a degradation of every relationship with women that you have and that you value and you prize. It will hurt your relationships with friends, with your spouse, with your future spouse. And it's important that we also recognize that pornography as an industry depends on the exploitation, often the violent exploitation of the most vulnerable. And, and you don't have to go look up Christian sources to, to find this. The, the New Yorker magazine a couple years ago did a long article on one of the biggest um, websites and, and detailed in excruciating detail the exploitation and, and again, even the violence um, against the vulnerable people, mostly women, uh, whose images are appearing there, often without their knowledge, often without their consent. Um, I know that all this is strong language, um, but it's important that we not kid ourselves about what this is. Um, it is important that we feel the weight of sin. It's important that we feel the real weight of sin because the only way, it, it, that is the only way that we're going to get to where the Apostle Paul is at the end of, of Romans chapter 7, right? When he cries out, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And it's the only way that we can then make the turn that he makes when he hears the good news as good news and says in the very next sentence, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's only then that we're asking the question, how can we be changed? How can we overcome this? And that's what Jesus is going to tell us. That's where we're going now. We're going to the good news. Look at verses 29 and 30 with me. I, I realize that when you look at verses 29 and 30, they might not look like good news on a first read. Jesus is talking about cutting off hands and gouging out eyes. Um, this does not sound pleasant. Um, actually, in a sense, if only it were so easy. Um, one of the reasons that we would say that Jesus is not 
speaking literally here is because we know that if I were to cut off my right hand, I would still have a left one. If I were to gouge out my right eye, I would still have a left eye. They're just as bad. What if I cut off both my hands, gouged out both my eyes? Still got an imagination. I still got a heart. Um, the problem is deeper than just our eyes um, or just our hands. And so what is he saying? If he's not literally talking about cutting off hands and gouging out eyes, what is he saying? I think there's two things, one practical and one theological. Practically speaking, I think he is simply saying, look, if you're in a situation that you know is a temptation for you, get out of it. If you have any ability to do so, flee from temptation. Even if it is costly, even if it feels like cutting off your right hand, even if it feels like gouging out your right eye. For some of us, this might involve uh, not watching certain movies. For some of us, it might involve um, not engaging with social media in the same way. There's all kinds of ways that this could happen. And, and some of those things could be costly, right? To not engage with social media, for instance. You say, well, I'm going to lose touch with my friends. I'm going to be cut out of these, these conversations. It's kind of a simple example. What Jesus is saying here is, not to be harsh, but so what? Um, that cost is, is vastly insignificant compared to the benefit of turning away from sin. He's saying, get your priorities straight. That's the practical. But he's also saying something theological here. And this, I think, is really important. Um, if I had ended the sermon about three minutes ago, um, when the weight of sin was at its heaviest. Some of you would have left here and, and, and you would have felt this weight of guilt and you would have thought, I've really got to change this. And, and guilt, guilt can motivate us to change, but the, the mode of that motivation would be simply, well, okay, so I, as I am, just have to try a lot harder. Right? I gotta figure out what to do. And one of the things that Jesus is saying here theologically is that what he's doing, what God is doing, is not simply saying, you, as you are, without any change, just try harder. Get your act together. That's not what God is saying. God is saying, you need to be changed. You need to be deeply and radically changed. And as we just said, the change that we need is deeper and it is more radical than cutting off a hand or gouging out an eye, because the problem lives in our hearts. We need heart replacement surgery. And guess what? That is exactly what God has promised to do. That, that, is, that is the song that we sing all the time. It's the song that we preached on last fall. In Ezekiel, God says, I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new spirit. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. What God is saying is that if you feel the weight of sin and if you know 
that you need to be changed and you cry out for that, then he has promised to do it, to do exactly what it is that we need. And, and, and for sure, it is hard. For sure, it will hurt. I went back and I read, um, some of you, some of you uh, are familiar with the, the Narnia books, right? And the, the third of those, uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, um, which is kind of the most metaphysical and definitely the weirdest um, of them. Um, there's, this, there's this boy, Eustace, right? And Eustace, he's, he's, I think he's a cousin to um, Peter and Susan and Edmund and, and Lucy. Um, and he's also, I think the technical term for Eustace is a little snot. He is just like, he's just awful. He's just this terrible kid. Nobody likes him. Um, and he gets caught up in this adventure. He gets caught up into Narnia. And, and while he's in Narnia, he comes across a cave with all this dragon treasure. And it says that he's lying there. He's greedy. He wants the treasure. And he goes to sleep on the treasure. And it says that there, in his greed, on the, on the treasure, he turns into a dragon. And he wakes up. And he's got claws, and he's got scales and everything. And, he, and he's trying to, like, you know, scratch it off. And because he's a reptile, he can, like, take off a layer of skin, but underneath that is just more dragon, right? And he just can't do it and can't do it. And then suddenly, Aslan shows up, the lion, the Christ figure uh, throughout Narnia. And Aslan says, you're going to have to let me undress you. And Aslan is able to get the dragon skin off of Eustace, and it hurts like the Dickens. It is painful. It is like having part of himself ripped off. It is like cutting off a hand, gouging out an eye. But when it's done, he's restored. I was glad that I actually went back and read the passage in Narnia because I had forgotten how Lewis ends this little episode. This is really helpful. Here's, here's the last thing that, that C.S. Lewis writes uh, about, about this episode. He says, it, it would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome. But most of those I shall not notice because the cure had begun. I am really grateful that C.S. Lewis put that part in um, because that describes sanctification. Um, that describes the cure. That describes the process by which God gives us a new heart and a new spirit. It is not always up and up. It is up and down and up. But over time, it is more up than down. It hurts, but it is worth it. And make no mistake, if you have put your faith in Christ then you have been given this new heart, and who you are has changed and is different. Why would you put your faith in this Christ? Go back to that image. Paul says that the love between a man and a woman, between a husband and a wife, that one flesh union, he says, it is a profound mystery, but it refers to Christ and his church. Genesis 2 says that for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Um, I, it is not easy looking across all the cultures of the world to find any culture in which it was normal for a man to leave his home. 
Um, men were typically the ones inheriting all the wealth. They would say, no, no, I'm, I'm very happy here. You can come join my home, um, but I'm going to stay here. Thank you very much. But we know one who left his father's courts above. We know one who emptied himself for us. We know one who holds fast to us with a permanence, with a covenant unshakability to put any earthly marriage to shame. This is one you can trust. This is one that you can ask to heal you and to restore you. This is one that you can ask to feed you. Um, this process of sanctification, this process that we're going to be talking about a lot as we keep going through the Sermon on the Mount, it is a long process. It is a long pilgrimage. It's a journey through the wilderness, and we need sustenance. We've got to keep coming back and telling ourselves this story again and again and again. And we've got to keep coming back to this table and feeding on his body and his blood, which he has given for us. We just finished studying Titus, and Titus says that the reason that he gave himself for us was to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's where we're going. And that's why there's hope. Before we come to this table, let's pray.